Thank you, Ricky, for that ministry of music. I think that's one of the most beautiful songs that's ever been written. I love the Lord's Prayer set to music. <clears throat> one of the great difficulties in life is having to learn to deal with criticism, especially over what might seem as seemingly inconsequential things. If people don't like us, they may have a tendency to be overly critical. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to criticism. He received criticism by many different people for a vast variety of things. In Corinth, Paul was criticized for failing to come to the Corinthians as planned. Evidently, he was being accused of being a liar at worst or unreliable at best. He was being accused of being a flip-flopper, wishy-washy, a person who changes his position for personal gain or expediency. That's a very common charge that people bring against those that are in authority. You may remember that one of the most pronounced flip-flopping positions was that of the first President Bush when he said, read my lips, there'll be no new taxes. And then after he was elected to office, he raised taxes. Well, they played and replayed and played again those statements from President Bush during his second run for the presidency, and of course, it cost him the second term. And he was not re-elected as president because he was viewed as a flip-flopper. It is common for politicians to charge one another with having positions that are expedient, taking positions that people want to hear, and saying one thing in one situation and the contrary thing in another. In a similar fashion, Paul is being charged with changing his position. The basis for this charge was a change in Paul's travel plans. He had failed to come to the Corinthians as he had written that he would in the end of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5, But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter, that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. However, Paul did not do that. And the failure to come to the Corinthians' plan led the Corinthians to question every aspect of his ministry. They used that one facet of his life to say that he was coming to Corinth and then failed to come to question everything that Paul stood for, everything that he taught. The question is, can this flip-flopper, can this wishy-washy person be trusted? Are they reliable? Can we believe what he is saying? The key verses are found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. And in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you, that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purposed, do I purpose according to the flesh? That there would be with me, there should be yes, yes and no, no at the same time. So, Paul is going to defend his change in plans. That he is going to explain why it was that he did not come to Corinth as he said he was going to come. 
And yes, believe it or not, there are some important lessons for us in what is really, in some ways, a very unusual text. So Paul defends himself against these charges of being wishy-washy. First, Paul defends himself by saying that he was not intentionally misleading the Corinthians when Paul changed his travel plans. Paul is confident and has a clear conscience that he, was, that he had done nothing wrong in ministering to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1.12 For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. Paul says, I can tell you that I have a clear conscience. I don't feel guilty about what I've done. I don't think I've done wrong. I don't think I've misled you. There is no stain on my conscience. I have confidence that what I have done is the right thing. Paul had not relied upon tricks, but on the grace of God in ministering to others, and especially to the Christians, uh, to the Corinthians. Verse 12. That in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Paul said, we didn't engage in fleshly wisdom. We didn't try to use the slight and trickery of mankind. We didn't try to use verbiage that was going to win you over. Paul not relied upon trickery, especially in speech, in order to impress or win over the Corinthians. Therefore, Paul had not lied when he said he was coming in order to simply pacify or placate the Corinthians for a brief period of time. He wasn't just telling them what they wanted to hear. He was sincere. It was his intent that he was going to come to them. He had not deceived them. His change in plans was not like a politician's change of position in order to gain approval or in order to deceive people into thinking that their position is one thing when it's really another. Paul says, that's not what I did. That's not what I did. Thirdly, the Corinthians clearly understood what Paul had written to them. Verse 13. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you understand to the end. In other words, you don't have to read between the lines. You don't have to try to figure out my speech. It's not nuanced. It's not put into a certain framework that you've got to read between the lines, understand the code words to really get at what I'm saying. Paul is saying, my speech to you is plain. He had not been deceptive in the language he used. It was not like President Clinton in his defense against the charges with Monica Lewinsky and did he lie? Did he perjure himself? And the famous statement of President Clinton was, it depends on what is, is. It depends on what you mean by the word is. Paul's saying, that's not what I did. I, I wasn't nuancing my words. I, I wasn't presenting my statement in such a way as to deceive you, to lead you into an area of thought that was not where I was going. Paul said, you understood rightly when I said that I was coming to Macedonia. The Corinthians have every reason to be proud of Paul, just as he is proud of them. Verse 14. Just as all you partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours. Paul had not acted in a shameful or sinful manner, as he was being accused of. Paul saying, you don't have to back away from me. You don't have to distance yourself from me. You don't have to have a lesser view 
of me. You have every reason to be proud of me in my decision. He is saying he did the right thing when he didn't come to Macedonia. Paul had every intention of coming to Corinth when he wrote his first letter to them. Verse 15. And in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you. Paul had really wanted to be a help to them. Verse 15. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you that you might receive a blessing. Paul wanted his presence and Corinth to be a blessing to them. In fact, not only had Paul planned to come, Paul's plan was that he would come to them twice, both on his way to and from Macedonia, verse 16. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you. So Paul said, not only was I planning to come, I was actually planning to come twice. I didn't mislead you. I didn't lie to you. That was my intention. And the reason for it was in order to be a blessing to you. Application. Little things can become very important. Who would have thought that the change in travel plans would have erupted to such a degree that we're going to see in just a few moments that his entire ministry is going to be questioned. We need to be concerned about the little things. So let us see what Paul does to defend himself. Secondly, Paul defends himself by saying that his word is reliable. He is maintaining his integrity. His word is reliable. Paul was not wishy-washy, verse 17. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this. Was I? Paul was saying, I wasn't wishy-washy. I wasn't vacillating. I didn't have two competing ideas in my mind. I wasn't thinking when I wrote to you, well, I may come and I may not come. So I'll just say I'm coming. Some people vacillate not by saying they are going to do something that they aren't going to do or aren't going to do something that they are going to do. Some people do that. But it, what is real common is for people to say maybe. Maybe. Let me think about that. Uh, I have a pretty common practice when people say to me, uh, well, maybe, Pastor. And I say, well, is that maybe really a maybe? <laughs> or are you just going to wait two weeks to tell me no? Uh, you don't need to wait two weeks to tell me no if you really don't want to do this. If it's really a maybe, fine. You know, uh, give you all the time in the world. But, but sometimes people don't want to be stark. You know, they don't, they don't want to come across belligerently. They don't want to. So even in the back of their mind, they have a, a 90% assurance they're not going to do this. They're not going to say that. They're going to say, maybe. Paul says, I wasn't vacillating. I wasn't hiding something from you. When I said, I'm planning to come, I was planning to come. It's true. Paul was not a flip-flopper. Verse 17. Or that which I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. Paul said, do I work out of a fleshly realm, meaning a sinful realm? Am I at one and the same time talking out of both sides of my mouth? Am I saying yes to things when I really mean no? And I'm saying no to things when I really mean yes? Am I deceiving you? Am I telling you one thing and planning to do another? 
Paul says, no, I'm not. Paul had not changed his plans for some kind of political gain. Paul was not speaking out of both sides of his mouth, as it were. But we see that Paul's change in travel plans should not discredit his whole ministry. Paul's yes was really a yes, and Paul's no was really a no. Verse 18. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. And now here's probably the most important thing in this section. Just because Paul changed his plans does not mean that God will change his plans. All the promises that Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy preached in connection with the Lord Christ would come to pass. Look at verse 19. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me, Sylvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. Paul said this Jesus Christ, who is preached by us, by me, by Sylvanus and Timothy, the promises of God that we declared to you were not yes and no, but yes in Him. In other words, everything that was preached that God is going to do is going to come to pass. Every promise of God is faithful. And Paul's change in plans shouldn't undermine everything that he had said about God. It shouldn't bring into question everything that he had taught, all the promises about the future and what God is going to do. Because Paul changed his plans back here, shouldn't undermine everything that he said. And that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing to Paul. That's exactly what politicians do to one another. They try to raise suspicion. If they change their position here, then what confidence do you have that they aren't going to change their position over here? If what Paul says about his travel plans doesn't come to pass, then how in the world do we know what Paul says about the Lord's return is going to come to pass? And you see what starts off as being something that's it's pretty minor, escalates into something that's pretty major. Because now it's about his ministry. Now it's about his apostleship. Now it's about the truthfulness of the Word of God. Paul says, God will, in fact, keep all of his promises, verse 20. For as many as may be the promises of God, in Him they are yes. As many promises as there there are, that's how many yeses there are. That's how many fulfillments there are going to be. As many as God's promises, that's how many He keeps. There's not one promise of God that fails, Paul says to the Corinthians. Paul's not speaking his own words when he talks of Christ's promises. But rather, he is speaking God's word. Verse 21. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us as God. God has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that all that has been promised is going to come to pass. Verse 22. Who sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Application. Paul's change in plans were being used against him to discredit him in a most inappropriate way. When we look at the structure of the book of Corinthians, and you you, you try to look at the big themes of what is going on, this section, to me, is fascinating in a number of ways. First of all, Paul had just written to them about the afflictions that he's been under. And they might understand the afflictions that he has been experiencing. Paul comes back to that on three occasions. 
And in 2 Corinthians 11.28, when he's talking about all his afflictions, he says this, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Paul said, of all the afflictions, whether they be the hardships, whether they be the beatings, whether they be the uh, time he spent in the, in the uh, sea, the, the times that he was starving, the times that he was flogged, the times that he was in prison. For, for Paul, the climax is the worst thing is the daily concern for the churches. I can't imagine the inner turmoil that this ruckus must have created for the Apostle Paul. To think that this decision that he made may have undermined his entire ministry. That could have rendered him useless in trying to address the Corinthian church. Paul was beating himself up over this for a period of time. And Paul comes back and says, I have a clear conscience. I've looked at this upside down, left, right, from every angle. And I'm telling you, I did the right thing. And I have a a clear conscience. How important it is in times of criticism to have a clean conscience. People don't always understand what we do. And we can't always even explain to someone in an acceptable manner why we are doing what we are doing. But we are able to sleep at night if deep down inside we can say we were trying to do the right thing. We were trying to serve God. We were trying to honor His Word. We acted in the best way that we knew how. That is what gives us the ability to sleep at night when people criticize our actions. They don't know the whole situation. They don't know, understand everything that is taking place. And Paul took comfort in the fact that he wasn't making decisions in order to placate them. Therefore, when a decision fell out in a way in which they weren't happy, it just didn't destroy him. Because that isn't what the decision-making process was for Paul. It was to do the will of God. That's what he's going to come to. What we have here is an argument that was taking place that was better suited for the political realm than for the church. We didn't do 1 Corinthians, but if you remember 1 Corinthians, it starts off by all the divisions that were, there were in the church at Corinth. Some said, I'm Apollos. Some say, I'm Paul. Some say, I am of Christ. People were in their little niches, and they had people that they were fostering. And just like in the political realm, you have people attacking the opponent. You had in Corinth people that were attacking Apollos and people that were attacking Paul. And they were doing anything they could to undermine these individuals. It was a very worldly situation. And they were practicing a very worldly kind of warfare. The same desire for prestige, prominence, and importance that motivate so many politicians, unfortunately motivate a lot of people in the church as well. People can be extremely self-serving, self-promoting, desiring what is best for them, mimicking the world around us, and then they mimic the (coughs) actions as well. So, number three, Paul defends himself by saying that Paul's motivation in changing his plans was an appropriate one. Paul wants them to understand 
that what he did was right. He wasn't looking for a pass. He wasn't looking for a wink that says, okay, Paul, this one time we'll forgive you. Okay, Paul, we'll believe you most of the time. This time you lied. Try to do better in the future. Now, Paul isn't seeking forgiveness here. And he isn't seeking mercy here. Have pity upon me. Paul wants them to see that what he did was, in fact, the right thing to do. How can that be? Two reasons. First, Paul had changed his plans for the sake of the Corinthians. Paul had not come to Corinth because he wanted to spare them from experiencing judgment. Look at verse 23. But I call God as my witness to my soul. Boy, those are strong words. I'm calling God as my witness. In this court that you're establishing, as you're passing judgment on my decision, I have one witness that I'd like to present. I have one character witness that I'd like to have uh, presented on my behalf. I call God to the stand. Listen to what God has to say about what I did is Paul's defense. You think I did wrong? Listen to God. Listen to God. I call God as my witness that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Now when he calls God as his witness, he does so in two distinct ways. First, He calls God to bear witness to his motivation. That is, that the reason he did not come was to spare them. To spare them. The sparing that he's referring to is judgment. Paul did not want to come bringing judgment upon the Corinthians. If he came to them, there would be a lot of issues that Paul would have to address. He was going to have to condemn their sinfulness, which he addressed in 1 Corinthians. Now, again, we didn't do the book of 1 Corinthians, but listen to this passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes to them and says this, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind is not, as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone would have his father's wife. That someone would have a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And you have become arrogant. And you have not mourned. Instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Paul said, I've already passed judgment on this. I've already made a determination. I'm not there. He says, I don't need to be. I know that's wrong. And so he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, I'm not going to be there bodily, but when I'm with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've turned him over to the evil one to take his life. Paul says, excommunicate this person from the church. Put them out with the hope that it is going to ultimately save his spiritual life. Paul says, I made that determination even though I was there. Paul says, I didn't come because I wanted to spare you. I didn't come because you think I was hard on what I wrote. You can't imagine what I was going to say when I showed up. This wasn't going to be a pleasant experience, brothers. 
This isn't something you were going to look forward to. This isn't something that you would have liked. But he's talking more about just what we like and don't like. Paul calls God as his witness in verse 23. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come to Corinth. Again, strong language. For now, he is calling upon God not only to bear witness to the motivation. The reason is because I wanted to spare you. But now, he's calling God as a witness to the appropriateness of what Paul did. What Paul did is akin to, like, in keeping with, what God has done on numerous occasions in the Old Testament. And that is, God, on numerous occasions in the Old Testament, pronounced judgment upon a people that God, when people repented, relented of. I can find many examples in the Scripture. Let me cite just one. In the Old Testament book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city. One day's walk. He cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He's going through the city of Nineveh and says, In forty days, God is going to destroy this city. Period. That's all he says. Forty days, your history. Forty days, Nineveh is not standing any longer. Forty days, it's all over. Jonah 3, 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation. And it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let them call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that he will now not perish. When God saw their deeds and they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And the city was not destroyed. The city was spared. The city was kept alive. And Paul says... I did this to spare you just as God did to spare the city of Nineveh. It was all about repentance. All about repentance. And the next verse in Jonah says that Jonah was displeased with God. And there were a lot of people that were displeased with Paul and with God. Now, let me unpack this for you in the text. Paul did not want the Corinthians' faith to rest in Paul alone. Verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith. He did not want them to act just because he was present with them. He wanted them to do what was right out of work of the Holy Spirit and and out of their own conviction. Paul had said, this is what you must do. Paul wanted them to do it without him being there. Paul wanted them to repent so that they wouldn't be relying upon Paul. Paul wanted his visit to be a joyful one. Verse 24. Not that we be lord over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. That together they could rejoice. Rejoice in what? 
Rejoice in repentance and the work of God. 2 Corinthians 7, 9. Paul writes, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. I rejoice because you repented. And that's what I wanted to say. And I wanted to come when we could all rejoice in the work of God in bringing about repentance. His plan worked. The Corinthians were standing firm in their faith. Look at verse 24. For in your faith you are standing firm. The man described in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who had his mother's, uh, excuse me, his father's wife repented. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. But if any have caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order that not to say too much to all of you. This person created sorrow for everybody. Verse 6, sufficient for such a one is his punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul says, he repented. Bring him back. Restore him in the church. Allow him to have fellowship. Experience your comfort. That's what Paul was all about. Verse 8, wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Application. Sometimes timing is everything. We must wait for the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't rush ahead of God even when people want us to. We must follow the Holy Spirit's leading and not just be a slave to our own plans. That can be humbling and it's often misunderstood. Such waiting for the Spirit of God to work can be viewed as procrastination, weakness, or even inconsistency in what we preach and how we act. How to deal with unrepentant people is a huge challenge. Some people want immediate action. Some people take the position, get them out of the church as fast as you can. Make them pay for what they have done. Others don't want to see anything ever done. Brethren, we need to be long-suffering. We need to be patient. We need to be gracious. And we need to look to the Spirit of God to work in our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me go through the more here and then we'll close up and I think in a way in which you'll understand what I'm driving at. Paul had changed his plans not only for their benefit but for his own. Verse 1 of chapter 2. But I determined this for my own sake. First, it would cause Paul great pain to add to the Corinthians' grief. Verse 2. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? Paul says, I already made you sorrowful. In the first letter. I already made you unhappy. I already addressed this issue in a harsh and difficult manner. Paul was confident that in the end, the Corinthians would do the right thing and repent. Verse 3. And this is the very thing I wrote to you. Lest when I came, I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. Paul said, I had confidence. I believed that God was going to work. I believed that, that God was going to bring this brother back. I believed that you were going to repent. I believed that you were going to act. And I was waiting to see God at work. And to be able to rejoice with you, just as I said in the first letter. I was waiting to come to you that we could all rejoice in what God has done. Remember verse 24, not that we lord over your faith, but our workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. 
It had been very painful for Paul to write such a harsh letter as he did in 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. You know how as parents we say, when we discipline our children, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I don't know how true that always is. But church discipline is painful. It's sad. It always revolves around some kind of sin that you know is going to hurt the individual and hurt the church and hurt the cause of Christ. And you don't discipline people out of a desire to see them suffer. You discipline people out of a desire to see them change. Out of a desire to see them repent. Out of a desire to experience joy in their own lives, joy in the church, and joy for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart. For Paul, that was more painful than any of the physical sufferings that he ever had to endure. To send a letter and say, turn this person over to Satan. Were probably the hardest words that Paul had ever written. And he wept. Paul had written him. Not to cause them pain, but to bring them to a place of repentance, that they would know joy. Verse 4. Not that you should be made more sorrowful. That wasn't his goal. Paul had written to them not because he wanted to cause them pain, but because he loved them. Verse 4. But that you might know the love which I have especially for you. The reason I wrote these things is not because I hate you. It's because I love you. I want the best for you. Your church and you as an individual. What a joy that this man who had that kind of relationship with his own mother that the world would condemn could come to know forgiveness and experience and restoration. What a praise to God. What a joy in that man's life. And Paul says, that's all I wanted. That's all I was about. That's why I didn't come. That's why I wasn't there. And that's Christ-like. That's what God does. God pronounces judgment and then gives people an opportunity to repent. And when they repent, He forestalls His judgment. Paul says, I call God as my witness. What I did was right. I have a clear conscience. And brethren, Paul is saying, we all ought to be rejoicing. We all ought to be giving praise to God. We should be using this opportunity to Be grateful for Paul's heart. Grateful for a message of forgiveness, of repentance. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. For to this end also I wrote, but I might put you to the test, whether you were obedient in all things. He knew that they would be obedient. And then verse 11. In order that no advantage be taken us by Satan... For we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul is saying, brothers, don't you see, at one and the same time, 
God at work here and Satan at work? Satan wants to bring division. Satan wants to bring harm. Satan wants to destroy the testimony of of God's people. Satan wants to destroy the testimony of the church. Satan is at work in this, Paul says. But God is at work too. And we ought to rejoice and be thankful and see what God has done. And recognize the faithful promises of God's Word. God does indeed welcome the sinner. God does indeed forgive those who have trespassed against Him. Satan is shrewd. And Paul says, don't let what was done to bring honor and glory to God be an instrument of destruction by the evil one. Understand what took place here. Not deception. Honesty. Not man's conniving. A work of the Holy Spirit. Not a wishy-washiness. An expectation, a confidence, a hope in the working of God. Don't turn it on its head. Don't let it become used of Satan to destroy what God is building. Conclusion, Satan is still at work today. And Satan loves to bring question to the decisions and motivations of God's leaders. And I think particularly so when we are trying to demonstrate the grace and mercy of God. And wrong motives are attributed when we want to extend the grace and mercy of God. You must be weak. You must be indifferent. You must not care. You must not have a a standard for righteousness. You must not be concerned about how this is affecting others. All these negative things, when in reality, what you are longing for is for people to experience the forgiveness and grace and joy of God in their lives. Don't let Satan use that to divide his people. But rather, let us rejoice and be joyful in anticipation of what God is going to do in our midst. May God grant repentance to His people. And may we rejoice when we see that repentance occur. May we delight in the heart of God and may we Seek to emulate it. May we be grieved as Paul was grieved as he looked at the sin. And may we be joyful as Paul was joyful when he saw the restoration. Yes, Paul did not do what he initially said he was going to do. Yes, God did not do what he said he was going to do when he said he was going to destroy the city of Nineveh in 40 days. And I know I've raised, uh, raised a whole other Pandora's box with that. But let me just say to you, it isn't a box. The end of Deuteronomy makes it clear that when God pronounces judgment, it is always contingent upon whether or not man repents. And it becomes an unstated rule that if people repent, God often doesn't do what he says he's going to do in judgment is intended to bring them to a place of submission. And so, the prophets many times didn't even mention repentance because it was understood. If you repented, things could be different. That's exactly what the king of Nineveh said. Well, maybe God will relent if we repent. What Paul did was in keeping with 
the purpose and will and mind of God. He was not vacillating. He was not wishy-washy. He was not acting like a person in the flesh. He, in fact, was following a godly example. And he said, I call God as my witness that what I did was right. Let's pray. Our Father, help us as your people, especially because sometimes there are people that we may not like. There may be situations we do not like. There may be people that are ambitious and want to hold positions that they don't hold. Lord, keep us from being like the world. Keep us from being like the politicians who turn on each other and try to bring up any kind of dirt or any kind of statement that somehow can be used against them to discredit or dishonor them. Lord, help us to be concerned with truth. Help us to be concerned with reality. Help us to be concerned with what is right. And certainly, it was inappropriate to view Paul as a liar and as deceiver and seeking some kind of self-gain by his decisions. He was being honorable. He was being faithful. He was trying to do the will of God. Oh Lord, help us in areas that sometimes are hard for us to understand what's the right thing to do. Lord, help us to, to really rejoice when people repent. May it be hard for us to confront. May we take no joy or delight in the causing of pain. But as later Paul writes and says, but he rejoices that they were made sorrowful, not for the sake of sorrow, but for the sake of repentance. Lord, help us to realize that sometimes we have to say and do some hard and difficult things, wanting good and joy and blessed things to result. Guard us as your church, we pray. Give us peace. Give us unity. Give us trust in one another. Give us a sense of anticipation of the work of your spirit. And let us rejoice in a God of mercy and grace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.